Hey everyone, Alan Smithson here, the XR for Business podcast. Coming up next, we have part one of a two-part series with the one and only Kent Bai from Voices of VR. Kent Bai is a truly revolutionary person and he has recorded over 1,100 episodes of the Voices of VR podcast and we are really lucky to have him on the show. And uh, this is two parts because it goes on and on. Welcome to part one of the XR for Business podcast with Kent Bai from the Voices of VR podcast. Kent has been able to speak peer-to-peer with VR developers, cultivating an audience of leading VR creators who consider the Voices of VR podcast a must-listen, and I have to agree. He's currently working on a book answering the question he closes with every interview he does, what is the ultimate potential of VR? To learn more about the Voices of VR and sign up for the podcast, it's voicesofvr.com. And with that, I want to welcome an instrumental person to my knowledge and information of this industry, Mr. Kent Bai. It's really a pleasure to have you on the show. Hey, Alan. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Oh, thank you so much. I listened to probably the first two or 300 episodes of your podcast, and I went from knowing literally nothing about this industry to knowing a lot. And it's those insights that you're able to pull out from the industry that's just amazing. So thank you for being uh, the voice of this industry. Yeah. And when I started the podcast, I wanted to learn about what was happening in the industry. And so I felt like one of the best ways to do that was to go to these different conferences and to talk to the people who are on the front lines of creating these different experiences. And so, um, yeah, at this point, I think I've recorded over 1,100 different interviews and I've published over 760 of them so far. So uh, wow. it's about for every two interviews I publish, I have like another interview that I haven't. So I just feel like it's important to be on the front lines, going to the to these gatherings where the community is coming together and to just be talking to people and see what they're seeing, see what the, the power of this new medium is. I uh, had the, the honor of being interviewed by you at one of these conferences. I don't know if it ever got published, but uh, it was an honor anyway, just to, to speak with you on on the subject, but you get to talk to literally everybody, anybody who's anybody in this industry, and it's it's really uh, an amazing experience to uh, to listen to these podcasts. And you really go deep into the technology of it. The listeners of this podcast are more maybe in the business, maybe they're not really into VR. What are some of the business use cases that you've seen from from these people that you've been interviewing that kind of made you go, "Wow, this is like this is incredible." Well, first of all, virtual and augmented reality as a medium is like a new paradigm of computing, spatial computing. And I think one metaphor to think about is how we usually enter into the computer is by pushing buttons and you know moving a mouse around. And it's almost as like we have to translate our thoughts into a very linear interface in order to interact with computing. And it's usually also in a 2D space. So a lot of times interacting and designing for 3D spaces. And so there's kind of like this weird translation that you have to do all these abstractions in order to do computing. So I feel like one of the big trends that's happening right now is that with spatial computing, it's becoming a lot more natural and a lot more intuitive. And so anybody that's doing design and 3D objects, it's almost like a like a no-brainer, whether it's in architecture or uh, designing 3D objects or big um, aerospace airplanes, cars, all these different people who are making these 3D objects and these CAD programs, there's just something that you can make design decisions a lot faster when you're actually immersed into the space. And you don't have to spend all this money to prototype these things out. So you see it a lot in the architecture, engineering, construction. 
But I, what I'm really excited about is these other aspects of natural communication. So how is AI going to be combined with these spatial computing platforms, being able to, to detect what we're looking at with the HoloLens 2 and to be able to then speak these different affordances and actions, you're going to get to the point where you can just say something and just speak much more like you would interface with other humans. And I think the computer technology is going to become better and better at being able to detect what we are intending and what we're saying. I'd say the other huge area that we're seeing just an enormous amount of applications is, is in training. And really, when you're training, you really want to like ideally do it yourself and be immersed into the context and the environment to have all the emotions that are coming up when you're under pressure to make a decision, and, but to be also embedded into a context that is mimicking what the real world situation is. And then you have to make choices and take action. And the action that you're taking within VR is often very similar to those same embodied interactions that you may be doing in real life. So I feel like there's so much of a mirroring of what's happening in these virtual worlds that the training applications are just incredible in terms of whether it's a surgical simulation or uh, Walmart's using it to train their different employees. Uh, elite sport athletes can do lots of different repetitions and be able to train themselves to have a, a level of situational awareness. I'd say those are the the big ones that I'm seeing right now. Uh, in the future, I expect to see a lot more information visualization, data visualization, finding completely new ways to analyze data uh, symbolically and, and spatially. I think there's a lot of work that can still be done. But a lot of things that I think about also is just like flow states. Like, what does it mean to work? And how can you yeah. cultivate the deepest flow state that you possibly can so that when you're working, you're just not having the technology get in your way, but you're having technology amplify what you're able to do. And so another big uh, area that I'm seeing sort of early indication with, uh, especially when I went to the Laval Virtual in France, it's an expo that's been going for the last 21 years, this concept of open innovation, uh, so collaboration and communication Remote assist is a, another sort of separate thing. But in terms of innovation, like what is the keys of innovation? And I think a big part of it is being able to openly share and ideate and brainstorm and tap into the more creative aspects of what you're doing. And so I'm seeing a lot of like Desalt Systems uh, was working on some specific products for open innovation, which I'm excited about because, you know, a lot of what you're seeing with augmented reality is for people who are first line workers. So people yep. who are in factory floors or people who are needing assistance uh, for remote collaboration or the people who are like on the ground physically doing these different actions, whether it's on a construction site or a factory floor. So a lot of the use cases for the HoloLens have been very much in the, of that realm, but I'm also really interested in terms of knowledge work. Like what does it mean to be able to collaborate with other people and to lower all the barriers? We had Jacob Lowenstein from Spatial on the show Oh, cool. Yeah. Yeah. I just talked to uh, Anand, who's the CEO of Spatial, and uh, saw the demo and just did a whole breakdown of all what they're doing with Spatial. Well, that speaks to exactly what you were saying, design work in collaboration and higher level work collaboration in augmented reality. Yeah, I think that it's still very early, but just it's also very early in terms of having this new, completely new paradigm for how you do spatial computing. I think there's going to be a mix of like sort of flashy Hollywood things that you see where the famous like minority report where you're kind of going through these different interfaces, um, that looks great, but it doesn't always feel great if you have to do that for eight hours a day. 
Yeah. But I think the key like breakthrough is going to be when you're able to just not think about it and kind of naturally move your body and be able to interface with computing with your full body. Because there's, yeah, there's neuroscience think... concepts called neuro, like embodied cognition. And what that means is that we don't just think with our minds, we think with our entire bodies. And so what does it mean to actually get your body engaged and moving around? It actually makes you like think better. And anybody who like likes to take meetings while they're walking, you may find that you may have a different way of, of brainstorming and ideating when you're actually in motion with another person. And I think that spatial computing is actually going to be leveraging a lot of those different types of concepts and that we spend a lot of time very stagnant and sitting at our desk, but a lot of the affordances of VR, when you're actually moving your body around, it actually is like tapping into deeper levels of the way that you think. So I think that there's going to be huge potential for what's it mean to be able to tap into that? Absolutely. It's really uh, an exciting time. I personally, I do uh, walking meetings all the time and, uh, I can tell you, it, they're just, it's not the same to have a phone meeting or a seated meeting when you're walking. It just sparks something. Uh, and I know Steve Jobs was, was a big advocate of walking meetings. So uh, there's, there must be something to it. Yeah. And I think that I'm starting to see that uh, spatial computing is going to be tapping into that. I'd, I'd also throw out there that there's the Bose AR frames. Yeah. And I, I expect people are going to be wearing like, these sunglasses that are kind of shooting spatial audio into your ears, but being able to tie with your phone, getting GPS and being able to basically detect which direction you're looking at, there's going to be a lot of innovation that happens and just overlaying layers of audio on top of reality. We'll eventually have digital optics on top of reality, but I think like there's a lot of innovation that's happening, at least in the storytelling realm, where when I go to these different film festivals, I kind of see what the storytelling potential is with these mediums. And I feel like there's going to be this great convergence at some point in terms of figuring out how to engage people within a story to help teach them these different concepts. And I think that's kind of like the next frontier of what is the blending of the storytelling affordances of VR on top of like the gamification game elements. So you kind of have like Hollywood mashed up with like the game development community and VR is like this melting pot of all these different disciplines. And so that's what makes it so fascinating to me is that you get people from every different domain has something to say about VR and AR because it's all about modulating the human experience. So I think we're in this kind of very early like Wild West era where there's not a lot of very specific best practices or experiential design theories that have been well established. And so you kind of have to like figure it out on your own. But I feel like there's enough kind of proof of concepts to show that it's effective, but to really tap into the, the deep ultimate potential, I think we're still quite a ways of doing that. But one of the sort of dark horses I'd say for the enterprise is that there's going to be an element of story and storytelling that to really fully engage people. Uh, and I think we're still very early in that era. Like with film, there was a cinema of attractions where they were still trying to like really figure out the language of the medium. I feel like we're in a very similar spot where we haven't really figured out all the different affordances of the, the language that you use for spatial computing. It's kind of an exciting time just because there's a lot of experiments to be done and a lot of stuff that still needs to be figured out. It's true. Uh, we see it every day where things, and I actually came up with this, this quote, how do you disrupt uh, an industry constantly disrupting itself? And every day something comes on the, on the news in virtual and augmented reality that flips the industry on its head. I, I mean, the introduction of AR Kit and AR Core probably put 200 startups out of business. And we're seeing these kind of rapid advances in technology. We've got AR platforms 
being hosted by Amazon, by Facebook, by Snapchat, um, where you can develop your own AR lenses. Anybody can do this. It's not just uh, developers. So I think there's going to be a democratization on the creation side, as well as this expansion on the enterprise side, which will, in my opinion, drive the consumer market forward. Yeah, I feel like VR and AR is such an interesting realm to cover just because it's helping define what the human experience is and all the different contexts that we have, because there are going to be entertainment applications, medical applications, and ways to communicate with our partners, whether it's our romantic partners or business partners, being able to like deal with death and grieving, spirituality applications in terms of connecting to myth and story and philosophy, but also like our career and what we're using it in our jobs, connecting to friends and family, dealing with isolation or neurodegenerative diseases. Uh, expression of identity is a huge thing with the facial filters and you know, seeing that a lot more in the in the consumer space, but the different ways that we have virtual embodiment and what does it mean to take on different characters and different bodies and financial, like virtual economies, as well as like communication and education and connecting to home and family. So I feel like there's all these different like specific contexts that they each are going to teach us something new about what it means to be human. And I'd say that the difference between VR and AR through this lens of context is with VR, you're able to completely shift your context. So you may be at home, but you all of a sudden now you're completely embedded within a, an office meeting and now you're at work. So you're kind of like being able to do this huge context switch. But with AR, it's less about doing a complete context switch because if you're at home, you're already at home and you may be able to overlay different people inside of your existing context, but you're still in that center of gravity of whatever context you happen to be in. So I'd see that like with AR, you're going to be still embedded and grounded into whatever context you are, but you're able to kind of pull things in. And I think it's going to be harder to do a complete context shift with AR. But you know, as AR and VR start to com eventually converge, maybe we'll see that a little bit more. But that's at least some of the ways that I'm seeing a little bit of the differences for, like, for example, if you want to do an architectural visualization, it may be better to do that in VR because you're able to completely shift your context and be completely immersed within that environment. But if you're trying to look and have a group conversation with five different people about a 3D object, maybe you want to have that in AR, especially if you're co-located with each other in the same room, so that you can have all the affordances of body language and communication that we all have. But if you still want to talk about these virtual objects, then maybe having either a HoloLens on your head, and maybe there's some tablets where there's different ways of accessing and annotating these different 3D objects. So those are some of the different use cases that I'm seeing, at least at this point. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, Jacob from Spatial was mentioning about, because uh, I asked him, why wouldn't somebody just put VR on and, and go in a collaboration room? And and the response actually uh, I hadn't considered was when you're in a group, let's say you're four people in an office and you're face-to-face, -face, well, you still want to see those people. You don't want to be in four different VR headsets, even though you're in the same room, <laughs> it would be weird. Whereas you can also then have the four people that are in the room and have a fifth person who's somewhere else in the world kind of beaming in and those four people then beaming out to them, it really creates this feeling of community. And a lot of times you also want to be able to see other devices while you're in there. And we're getting to the point where we're going to be able to port our devices into VR, our computer screens and our phone screen or whatever, but uh, we're not quite there yet. Yeah, it reminds me of, so I've gone to Microsoft Build for the last three years and that's a good place to kind of see some of the AR demos that are there in terms of the partners with Microsoft. And 
so some of the demos that I've seen there were for people who are doing sales for like, say, medical equipment, sometimes the medical equipment is very specific to the context of a specific room. And so I think people who are doing sales would be able to look at the existing context of a room and start to overlay these digital objects on that room, but still yep. have that face-to-face -face interaction. And especially with the HoloLens 2, where you can kind of flip up the visor if you want to look people directly in the eye. Uh, but I feel like just in talking to different people, the sales increase in terms of being able to have them see what it was actually going to look like in that context. And um, also just Lowe's and these different companies that when you go to like Home Depot or Lowe's, they'll do like these whole like build outs of entire like kitchen. But oftentimes you may have a very specific thing you're looking for and you want to know what that looks like in the context of your kitchen. Yep. And so being able to detect your space in your context and then put that object or whatever it's a refrigerator or whatever it is into your, into that context, it lowers the cognitive load of imagination because it actually is a very difficult for you to imagine what it's going to look like. And you have to kind of just see it before you really know whether it's going to work or not. And if you can do that and, and preserve that existing context and then lay the object in there, I think that's another huge use case that I'm seeing, whether it's like selling medical equipment or selling kitchen equipment for home renovation. Uh, there's some of the unique affordances of AR as a medium. And the, the great thing about that is that that'll work on any device. That'll work on your phone. And the, by the end of this year, there'll be over 2 billion smartphones that are AR enabled with AR kit and AR core. And so you'll be able to put a fridge in your kitchen in context in the right size and see if it fits. Now you can drop a car in your driveway and take a picture of your new car or so I think there's going to be a huge push towards kind of three-dimensional uh, retail and e-commerce with these mobile devices. And that way, you don't even need a headset for that. You can use the device that's in everybody's hands. And it's not the same experience, but it doesn't have to be in those cases. Uh, there's an interesting point that came up in my mind as you were saying some of that. And that's that I think a lot of enterprises, they need to see a lot of numbers in terms of the improvement of how much more efficient things are. And people like Accenture, they've been certainly coming up with a lot of those different quantitative studies. Uh, and I think a lot of companies would want to see that, like what is the return of investment for jumping into immersive? And I think those are important to be able to make those decisions. I think it's also important to point out that there's a lot of the benefits for spatial computing that maybe never be able to be quantified with a specific number. There's a certain quality of experience that happens that I feel like there's a, a whole realm of the the usefulness of these spatial computing technologies that it's going to be more like behavior and cultural shifts in order to like use these technologies. And specifically what I mean is that we kind of live in an information environment right now where we really want like fast bite-sized information and a level of tweets. Uh, and I kind of see like spatial computing as the antithesis of that because it's very difficult to hop into a virtual reality experience for a few minutes. Um, although I, I will say- It's almost impossible to hop in in a few minutes. Every time I go to use mine, I, we got to wait for all the updates. <laughs> yeah, there's there's all sorts of thrash. I mean, I will say that with Oculus Quest, that's changing for me. I've, I've had an early access to the, the Quest, and I do think that the Quest is going to be revolutionary in terms of making it easier for people to hop in to VR. Oh, although- the the focus of Oculus has been much more in gaming than, rather than productivity applications, but they still have a number of different productivity applications that are coming out, whether that's going to be Tilt Brush for doing like rough prototyping or Gravity Sketch, 
Um, and we'll wait to see what other enterprise applications come out. But I, I do expect to see that the Quest is going to have a lot of applications. That's the, the headset that has no tether, no wires. It's completely uh, wireless and mobile, and you've got these six off controllers. It's really exciting. What's the price point? I think it's... So there's 399 for 64 gigabytes, 499 for 128 gigabytes. Uh, however, uh, for the enterprise, it's like 999 per headset uh, with a, like $180 per year. There's a whole Oculus for Business that is going to have a whole specific offerings for the enterprise. And that you get the ability to kind of turn off all of the main uh, Oculus Home and be able to distribute just your application. And, and they're working on different deployment solutions and whatnot. Because if you're working with dozens or hundreds or thousands of headsets, then you got to have some system to be able to deploy updates and software to all those headsets. And so that's kind of like the software they're working on. But just to kind of wrap up a point that I was uh, beginning to make, which is that the I'd see virtual reality technologies to be very similar to like sitting down and reading a book where you actually like making a commitment to be completely immersed and focused on a very specific task. And I feel like that is becoming rare and rare. And I think that's been in some part the difficulty of why VR may have not been taking off as quickly as some would have imagined. I mean, the technology is amazing, but there's a certain amount of cultural shift that you have to have in order to like really commit to being immersed and present within a virtual experience. And I feel like once you cultivate, I guess, that quality of being where you can be fully immersed, then I feel like that is tapping into other levels of focus that are becoming more and more rare within our lives. And so the levels of, of like focus and productivity and consciousness hacking, I expect that there's going to be ways for people to be able to really get into these deep flow states and, and potentially even start to do more work from home, uh, especially if you work in an open office environment where it becomes more and more rare for you to really have this the deep focus that you need. So I just wanted to point out that there's a lot of emphasis right now in our culture on numbers and trying to quantify things. And I've been focusing a lot also in like, what is it? what are the different qualities that may be difficult to put a number on? And I think it's like these levels of presence, these, these depths of connection, the, the intimacy that you can have when you're face-to-face -face with somebody else, there's all these levels of like body language where you fly across the world because you want to have that intimacy. I think eventually we'll get there with VR. There's still a lot of ways to go in terms of body language and emotional expression where it's not quite the same as like being face-to-face. -face. And maybe it'll always be preferable to be face-to-face -face with certain contexts. But for some situations, I think it's going to be a lot better to just meet in virtual world and to not have to travel as much. Um, and especially if you talk about like remote collaboration with many different people, because if you use something like Zoom or Skype, like it's okay for a couple of people, but once you start to have like a group conversation with five or 12 people. Yeah, it falls apart. You, it, you really want to have like body language. You want to have spatial audio. Um, it's so much more efficient to have like big team meetings within virtual spaces uh, rather than trying to mediate it through like digital technologies. And so I expect that one of the things I'm really interested in seeing is like some of these different startup companies within the VR space that are remote and they have to kind of dog food their own remote collaboration tools. I think that what that's going to bring is that maybe there'll be a less emphasis on specific jobs or tasks where you have to be expected to go into work. And I think eventually we'll get to the point where maybe you could live out in the middle of the country. And as long as you have a good internet connection, you could be still interfacing with some of the most talented and brilliant people in your disciplines and domains, and you could be anywhere in the world. 
And I think the potential of what that means is really exciting uh, because it doesn't mean that you have to go and live in Silicon Valley or Los Angeles uh, to be able to collaborate and work with some of these people, or whether it's New York City or wherever it is in the world, a major city. I, I see this other trend of like these remote collaboration and remote work where people are able to work from home. But the thing that's lost is the, those group conversations and the more serendipitous water cooler conversations and stuff like that. So it'll be interesting to see how some of these remote companies are able to adapt and create these tools. And one thing that I would say from my experience of working at a remote company is that if you're completely 100% remote, then it works great. But as, as long as you have like a critical mass of people that are face-to-face, -face, then it's really difficult to be pulling in all these other people into these remote environments, just because it's a it's a, a definite context switch. Um, so that's some of the things that I'm in the long term looking forward to seeing uh, how this all starts to play out. Yeah, it's. Uh, I think another thing that will make a big difference, and it, it doesn't seem like a big thing, but eye tracking, being able to actually look somebody in the eyes in VR. I, I've had the opportunity of playing with the the Toby eye tracking system with uh, HTC Vive and. Just being able to look at somebody and look at them in the eyes and know that they're, they're actually looking at you, not they're not an avatar that's kind of a disembodied, cartoonish version of themselves. And to be honest, everybody keeps trying to push towards photorealistic avatars, and there's the uncanny valley of, of getting too close to reality, and then your brain kind of goes, there's something not right, and rejects it. But I think we can stay on, on the cartoonish side of things as long as we have things like eye tracking and hand tracking. It really it feels right. I, I've done conferences in VR where I'm speaking to 200 people. And I feel like I've met some of these people. We have little conversations in the hallway uh, before or after the event, and it feels like you've been there. It, it tricks your brain to thinking you actually were there. It's amazing. Yeah, both the HoloLens 2 and the Magic Leap are shipping with eye tracking. And I think that the Vive, there's going to be an enterprise version that has eye tracking as well. Um, yep. It does make a difference, especially with social interactions. And the thing that the Hollands was really looking at, uh, the Hollands too, is to be able to look at objects and that allows the computing technology to be contextually aware. It knows potentially what you're looking at if it can detect the object, especially if it's a virtual object, you can know that you're looking at the virtual objects and you could start to use voice commands. So you could like look at a light and say off and then eventually have the light turned off. There's a lot of talk about edge compute devices and getting away from like centralized everything and being able to have like these different remote sensors. And so I expect that that's going to be a huge thing, um, especially if you are a company that starts to deploy a lot of these edge compute devices that are detecting different aspects and environment. Um, kind of the user interface for a lot of those devices could be a layer of augmented reality and these HoloLens devices or virtual reality devices where you can start to have your command center within a, a virtual or, or augmented space. Incredible. There's so many opportunities and so many um, possibilities. And, and like you mentioned, it's kind of like when the iPad was introduced, it was great. You could watch movies on it and you could read books on it. And then all of a sudden, people started making all sorts of things for it. When you look back 12 years ago, there was no such thing as an app developer. Uh, and now there's millions of app developers. Four years ago, there was no such thing as VR developer. Maybe Well, maybe five years now, but now... There are probably thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, and soon to be millions of people developing for this technology medium. And it's really about to enter this kind of exponential phase, but it's not just VR and AR. It's 
artificial intelligence, Internet of Things, 5G, quantum computing, edge computing, it's molecular genetics. All of these technologies, all at the same time, are really going through this nascent stage where they're entering into this exponential growth phase where they all go straight up. And since they all kind of work together, I think we're, we're entering into what is quite possibly the singularity in the next 15 years, 10 maybe. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a skeptic of the concept of singularity. And the reason why is because I feel like there's human consciousness that is way more complicated than these distributed technologies. And that, I mean, I, the theory of singularity is that at some point that the, the change is happening so quickly that it goes beyond the human comprehension of understanding these systems. And if we get to that point, then I feel like something has gone seriously wrong because I don't think it's about creating a sort of a, a self-sentient like technology that is so brilliant within its own right that it doesn't need humanity. I feel like if anything, like all these technologies are in service of humanity. And so, uh, but it does speak to this larger point of explainability and ethics and morality because in artificial intelligence, at least it's when you start to have these very complicated deep learning algorithms and you want to know why something made a decision, then it becomes a little bit of a black box and it becomes unexplainable. So it, there is a level of these different machine learning applications that are creating these models that include millions or billions of feature points that are sub-symbolic in the sense that there's no comprehensive story that you could like look at and say, like, why did this determine that this was a cat and not a dog? But I do think you're right in terms of the these are exponential technologies and there's going to be ways in which they are combining together that are unpredictable just in terms of like, say, who would have predicted that having a little extra bandwidth that eventually the cell phone signals that eventually was catalyzed and inspired text messaging through the accessibility needs that something like text messaging would be able to facilitate microeconomies in Africa to kind of take these combinations of things and to see how they're combined to be able to have these emergent behaviors that are a little bit hard to predict. And I feel like we're in that realm right now where there are going to be cryptocurrencies and the blockchain and be able to do distributed trust and self-sovereign identity. And that, in a lot of ways, I think it's going to bootstrap what the, the point that I thought of when you were making that point is that, yes, there are app developers, and there's a value of having like a closed ecosystem to be able to do like native development. However, um, I do think that there's value of having like open systems and open protocols and to, to look at the power of the open web because you do have this kind of tension between the closed walled garden app ecosystems and the power of the open web. They kind of are working in antithesis to each other. I feel like they're always gonna be a dialectic between the closed and open. In some ways, the app ecosystems can be on the bleeding edge, but the downfall is of being on the bleeding edge is that if you want something to still work in a year or two years or five years or 10 years, then there's a lot of like technical debt that has to be maintained for a long time. <laughs> hey, I, uh, sorry, I laugh because to think that something that we build today is going to work in 10 years is almost laughable. But there's VRML projects that were created 20 years ago that still work today. There's websites that were created uh, over 25 years ago that still work today. So that's the value of interoperable open standards is yeah. that you can actually create stuff that is going to be able to be looked at in five or 10 years. And I feel like that's a dynamic, a conversation that I don't hear as much about uh, in the larger consumer VR. But in terms of the enterprise, and especially if you're working with these different uh, systems where you don't want to be maintaining them 
uh, a huge systems each and every year and just making sure that the unit build still works. There's value being on the bleeding edge, but there's also value of waiting for the open standards like the OpenXR for hardware or open the, the WebXR for the open web um, yep. or these open standards for identity. So I feel like depending on what you're doing in the enterprise, if you do need to have stuff that is still accessible and usable in, in three to five to 10 years, then I think it's worth looking at some of these other alternatives that maybe move slower, but uh, once the WebXR 2.0 spec finally launches at, within the next year or so, I imagine, then you're going to see a huge renaissance in the alternative like open web, because I feel like not having those standards fleshed out has been leaving all the spoils left for to do development within either Unity or Unreal Engine. And if, for anybody that's doing serious applications, I would definitely recommend them to do like Unity or Unreal, uh, but to also keep an eye on what's happening in the open web space, because it's going to be a huge part, um, especially as, depending on what you're doing, the downfall for those app ecosystems is that you have these walled gardens where you have curators who may or may not want to support or promote your different applications. If Facebook does down, go down the route of only looking at gaming, then if you want to create a consumer application that is usable by the enterprise, then it may be harder to get it onto the platform. So I think there's a lot of like, different tensions and trade-offs that I just wanted to kind of flesh out there. And that concludes part one of the XR for Business podcast with our guest, Kent Bai. Coming up next on the XR for Business podcast, we have Kent Bai, part two. Being an influencer on LinkedIn in the XR field uh, really has opened up an opportunity for us to not only understand what corporations are looking for in virtual augmented mixed reality and artificial intelligence, but also from the aspect of the startups, studios, developers, and enthusiasts out there and what they need. So what we decided to do after getting hundreds and hundreds of messages is to open up XR Ignite to the entire XR community of startups, studios, individuals, passionate people, and really to build a new community that brings together everybody who's passionate about this technology for a low cost and allow them to contribute, to learn, and to get better across the whole industry. That is really the reason why we started XR Ignite, to hyper-accelerate the XR for business industry, business and education. And one of the things that we just keep noticing is that there's so many resources out there. There's the VRAR Association, which we're partners with. There are you know reports coming out daily but there's no one source where people can come together and start just having conversations around how to get better in this industry. And that's why we started XR Ignite. I would encourage anybody who's listening to this podcast, if you're in the corporate side, if you're a startup, if you're an individual, if you're an enthusiast, sign up today at xrignite.com and you'll be getting access to new reports, investor lists, media lists, exclusive content, interviews with our mentors we have over 56 mentors and if you're a startup and you pay an annual fee you'll actually have the opportunity to book a one-on-one one one hour call with one of the mentors what we're doing with that is we're actually recording those sessions we're transcribing them taking out any personal information and we're making those transcripts available to all members so i think xr ignite is going to drive a lot of value for anybody in this industry who's looking to up their game and also for corporates who want a real insight as to what technology is coming out. So I would encourage everybody to sign up at xrignite.com and I really look forward to driving value, executing on our mission 
to hyper accelerate XR for business and education.